Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Tribes have been instrumental in restoring bison herds ever since the animal was driven to near extinction in the last half of the 19th century. It's a cultural and spiritual pursuit as much as an agricultural and ecological one. The Lipan Apache tribe is now tending a small herd of bison, the first reconnection between the tribe and the animal in at least a century. We'll check in with tribes new to bison restoration and veteran bison ranchers, coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Shirley Jihad, in for Antonia Gonzalez. Another United Nations report is sounding the alarm about how climate change is ravaging the natural world and disrupting the lives of billions of people. And it says Native Americans are on the front lines of this devastation. The Mountain West News Bureau's Robin Vincent has the story. Amber Torres is chair of the Walker River Paiute Tribe in Nevada. She's been speaking out about the ways climate change is disproportionately affecting tribal nations. Because we're natural stewards of the land, I can say that definitely we've seen huge climate change impacts. Some of the most recent evidence came in the form of a tiny traditional food with great cultural significance the pine nut. Due to a warming climate, there were none for the Walker River Paiute Tribe's annual pine nut festival. Torres says the new climate report is hardly surprising. She hopes that as scientists continue to ring the alarm, policymakers will bring more tribal leaders to the table. For National Native News, I'm Robin Vincent. An investigative news report finds abuse and neglect in a program that is supposed to help indigenous Hawaiian families buy homes on their ancestral lands. The program gives federal assistance to people who are at least 50% Native Hawaiian to buy a home. But the report from the Honolulu Star Advertiser and from ProPublica finds many of the homes have turned out to be moldy with shoddy and unsafe construction. And it says the agency running the program, the State Department of Hawaiian Homelands, fails to inspect the properties it contracts developers to build. Hundreds of properties are involved. The report says the agency simply relies on promises from developers about the quality of construction rather than doing the inspections itself. In Milwaukee, Marquette University is changing its school seal. This week, the university board voted to overhaul the school seal, including removing the university namesake, French Jesuit missionary Jacques Marquette. He arrived in the area in the 1600s. The seal had included an image of him with his Native American guide. The new seal will feature a landscape in honor of the land and water of the region. The shift comes after more than 15 years of student activism, objecting to how images on the seal had depicted the role of Native Americans. In South Dakota, the state legislature there is again turning down an effort to establish two schools with native-based curriculum. The bill would have funded the community-based schools that would have applied state curriculum standards, along with emphasizing Lakota language and culture. South Dakota Public Broadcasting reports this is the third time lawmakers rejected the bill by Democrat Troy Heinert. 
He insists the current education system is failing Native students, and the culture-based curriculum is the answer to that. Opponents, though, including a representative for the state's school districts, say the bill is poorly designed and that there are other measures to introduce Native lessons. It all came down to the pork and sweet potato empanadas. The newly crowned culinary champion in a big televised chef competition is a prairie band Potawatomi and Mexican-American woman. Los Angeles-based chef Stephanie Payette de Spain is taking the quarter of a million dollar grand prize in Next Level Chef. It's the latest competition show from celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay. Despain says she wants to introduce more people to her brand of indigenous American fusion cuisine. With National Native News, I'm Shirley Jihad. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department, providing complete convention and visitor planning services to Hispanic and Native American conventions. Information on convention and tourism services at ahcnm.org. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Lipan Apache tribe in Texas is the latest tribal community to release buffalo in their traditional homelands. They will join the Texas Tribal Buffalo Project. The mission of the project and many other tribally run buffalo programs and businesses is to strengthen cultural connections, food sovereignty, local ecology, and tribal economy. The growth of the Intertribal Buffalo Council shows the momentum of bison revitalization. Over two decades, the council now includes 69 tribes across 19 states. These are tribes that are actively managing and growing bison herds. Some of the hurdles tribes face when bringing back bison to their homelands is land access as well as capital to maintain, grow, and process bison. Today, we'll talk about current efforts to reintroduce bison back to our indigenous homelands. And you can join the conversation. Tell us about your tribe's bison herd. What does it mean to have bison roaming in your community? How important is bison to food sovereignty? Please join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us today from Rapid City, South Dakota is Troy Heinert. He's the executive director of the Intertribal Buffalo Council, and he's Rosebud Sue. Welcome back to NAC, Troy. Well, thank you for having me, Sean. I'm excited to hear the conversation. You bet. And joining us from Welder, Texas, is Lucille Contreras. She's the CEO and founder of the Texas Tribal Buffalo Project. She's an enrolled member of the Lee Pan Apache Band of Texas. Welcome to NAC, Lucille. Bonjour. Hello. Thank you for having me. Joining us from Parmalee in the southeast suburbs of the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota is Philip Little Thunder Sr. 
He's a spiritual advisor with the Buffalo Field Campaign. He's Lakota. Welcome to the show, Philip. Big thank you. And joining us from Porcupine, South Dakota, is Lisa Ironcloud. She's the cultural foods manager for Makoche Agriculture Development. And she's Oglala Lakota. Welcome back to NAC as well, Lisa. Hey, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate this opportunity to be able to talk with everybody. Well, I'm excited for this opportunity too, and I'm really, really interested in hearing what our guests have to say today. And let's go ahead and kick off our discussion with Lucille. Lucille, bison revitalization efforts embraced and thriving across Indian country. And when I learned that the Intertribal Buffalo Council includes nearly 70 tribes, I wasn't surprised because I see bison now in so many native communities. It's really exciting. What's driving these efforts? I think it's a real hunger to reconnect with our relatives, the bison, and also with each other, especially during this time where everybody is struggling so much uh, in so many different ways. And for for me personally and my family, my relatives here, the bison are very much a healing medicine. Just their presence alone is so incredibly mentally healing as well as when we do partake, uh, when we harvest the animal and you really feel a difference in your mind, your body, and your soul. And I think everybody is just really, really hungry for that in more ways than one. <laughs> I think so too. Now, Lucille, the Leapan Apache just recently acquired several buffalo. How did you get them? Yes, we did. Thank you. We are very blessed. Um, our bull was donated by an anonymous donor, and he was with us for two months before uh, we purchased three females from Carrizo Springs, Texas, from um, Rest in Peace, Hugh Fitzsimmons, Thunderheart Bison Ranch. And those four bison that we started with are actually part of the Southern Plains Indigenous bison indigenous to our region and then recently we were granted five beautiful females from colorado through the tonka fund and the nature conservancy so we've got a total of nine and i'm pretty sure eight females are pregnant and hopefully we'll be having some babies this spring well, that's really exciting. Uh, buffalo bison calves uh, do this spring. Lucille, about how much land do these nine head of bison occupy? We are on 77 acres, and I'm using about three acres for two-legged use, and the rest is all for the bison. So it's a definite labor of love uh, every day watching the soil watching the grass and watching and developing our relationship with the Iyani, the buffalo. Now, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the relationship, Lucille, because I understand that you approach your bison like caring for relatives. So can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between these bison and the Lipan Apache? Absolutely. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge and recognize Knife Chief Buffalo Nation Society in Porcupine, South Dakota. Um, 
Knife Chief Buffalo Nation Society is where myself and my family truly were immersed and uh, welcomed into the Buffalo Nation there. Um, it was through working and living there that we learned how to caretake for the bison as our relatives. They're not a livestock commodity. They're not a marketing tool. <laughs> These are our relatives. And just as much as they have suffered generationally trauma and loss of land, so have many of us as Indigenous people. And my tribe, my nation, the Lipan Apache Band of Texas, um, we're working so hard to reconnect with each other. And so, yeah, that that's just uh, one of the ways is our, our relatives are somebody, we really truly, they are our relatives. So we're just caretaking for them in that way. Now, Lucille, one more question. What is the long-term plan for, for your bison relatives? Sure. Um, well, we're raising our herd as a cultural herd, uh, as a way for people to come and reconnect with each other and with the bison. We have many programs that are happening at our place. We're practicing sustainable agriculture. Like I said, watching the relationship between the soil and the grass and the microbes and the microorganisms. Uh, actually, currently, we're on our way to a Lipan Apache ceremony and gathering in Brackettville, Texas, where we've got some uh, Lipan Apache relatives from south of the border who will be coming up, and uh, we'll be gathering there. I'm bringing uh, frozen bison meat. We are also, Texas Tribal Buffalo Project, are purveyors of frozen bison meat. And this is a way that we sustain our programs and also provide bison meat and reintroduce that meat into our diet to help relieve and alleviate all of the health disparities because of our loss of our traditional foods. And so another thing that we're going to be doing here pretty soon is participating in an intertribal bison handling program. Well, we'll, we will be working with other tribes like Cheyenne Arapaho and hopefully Modoc. And if there's any other tribes out there interested, um, please contact me because uh, this is going to be happening here this month in Texas. And we'd love to welcome other tribes to join in with us in this bison handling. Well, thank you for that background, Lucille, and good luck with this uh, growing bison herd that you have down there on Leapan Apache lands in Texas. And let's go ahead and bring Troy Heinert into the conversation now again he's executive director of the intertribal buffalo council and he's also the senate minority leader in the south dakota state legislature and troy um lucille just mentioned you know some of these other tribes interested in in buffalo and we mentioned that there are nearly 70 tribes as part of the intertribal buffalo council so what are some different ways that you're seeing tribes use bison on their land and benefit from having bison on their land as well well, first off, I, I have to apologize because we haven't updated our, our website. Um, we're up to 76 member tribes uh, in 20 states, uh, 55 herds, and then uh, we, you know, our tribes run about uh, over 20,000 buffalo collectively. So, uh, you know, the way tribes are, are using uh, buffalo is, is just like uh, Lucille had said. 
you know, that spiritual and cultural connection. And, and that's what ITBC's main goal in restoring Buffalo back to uh, native lands, that's, that is our mission and vision. Um, you know, we have tribes that are at various different capacities. So we have tribes who are just starting out brand new, um, you know, small herds, small land bases. And then we've have, have tribes that uh, have been, you know, raising and managing buffalo uh, on their homelands for uh, decades. So it just kind of depends on the area uh, that they're at and the capacity that they're at. Uh, here at ITBC, we want to just help them in any way that we can. That's right. We are going to have to take a break in a, about another minute here, but I want to ask you how much of present day North America was originally inhabited by bison? I've always been curious to know about how far bison really extended. So uh, we found we have found uh, bison to be located uh, clear across North America, um, you know, from the east to the west, uh, down into Mexico and up into Canada uh, in, you know, their predominant range uh, was through, uh, you know, the, the very center of, of the country. Okay. Well, folks, we are talking about bison revitalization efforts today. We've got four guests with experience and knowledge on these topics. Really, really fun, interesting conversation. We do have to take a short break, but if you've got a comment or question for today's show, don't hesitate to call us 1-800-996-2848. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. We'll be right back. Tune in right here every weekday to hear the only national call-in radio show from a Native American viewpoint. We explore topics that range from traditional cultural practices to up-to-the-minute news that affects every American. We hope you join us for the next Native America Calling. Visit insurekidsnow.gov Ilyayo Nishlamas Aphayo 1877 Kids Now. Lakhol
Welcome back. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Today we're talking about bringing bison back to our native communities. If your tribe has a herd, tell us about the role bison play in culture and agriculture. Join the conversation, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Troy, thank you. Uh, before we went to break, you gave us an update, and there are now 76 tribes with active bison programs, uh, accounting for 55 herds and more than 20,000 head of bison. So congratulations to everyone working hard on these revitalization efforts. And, and Troy, I want to ask you, because earlier uh, in the show intro, we mentioned that tribes have some hurdles to get over when it comes to acquiring a bison herd. Can you expand on that? I mean, what all does it take to get into the, the bison revitalization business? Sure. Well, you know, the first uh, and obvious thing is is you have to provide a, an environment where buffalo can thrive and be buffalo. Um, you know, it, it is not our goal or intention to uh, treat them like cattle. Uh, we believe, just like uh, Lucille, that, you know, buffalo are our relatives and they should they should live life as, as they were intended to uh, by the creator. So uh, that that's the biggest hurdle is just the land acquisition, especially in tribes uh, with tribes who've had their land base minimized, you know, through federal policy. Um, but then being going beyond that, um, you know, following all the regulations that it takes to uh, to get buffalo in uh, to to their area and uh, monitoring, you know, their health and in existence, and that's where ITBC comes in. Now, what type of training or education do tribes and ranchers need uh, as they're getting ready to bring bison back into their lands? Well, they obviously would need to know, you know, how many buffalo that uh, their their current setup uh, can handle. Um, they also need to know the, the safety of, of handling buffalo. You know, they're, they are a wild animal. Um, they can be dangerous. Uh, so we want to make sure that they are uh, safe in, in handling as well as the, the workers are safe in, in handling these animals. Um, and then I, I think uh, having a, an idea of, of how does this, how is this going to uh, relate to the rest of the tribal membership? You know, we have some tribes that, that view their buffalo as more cultural herds, and they're managed as such. Uh, and then we have, you know, other tribes that that do use them as uh, to get into their, their food systems, uh, into their schools, into their elder programs, and, and give out meat to their tribal membership. So it really kind of depends on, on how the tribe plans to, to use the animal uh, in a a spiritually and, and culturally appropriate manner. Now, Troy, even though there has been this great progress made with regard to these many different revitalization efforts going on throughout Indian country, regardless, bison are still an endangered species. Why is that? Well, I, I think uh, there's, there's been a lot of, of conversation about whether they are an endangered species or, or not. Um, you know, we don't really at ITBC get into that that conversation. I think that probably comes from some some other groups. Um, but what we do know that it, at one time they were nearly extinct, and we know why that was. You know, that wasn't that they were mad at the buffalo. 
Uh, I think we can all we can all identify as to why those uh, animals were re- removed. Um, our main goal is to try to get as many live buffalo from uh, as many federal sources as we can uh, out and and relocated to tribal lands. And you know, so far we've we've been we've developed relationships with national parks and grasslands and other NGOs and. Um, that we've been able to to move quite a few buffalo uh, onto tribal lands, and and that number is is growing, you know, every day. Well, Troy, thanks for all that background and and, and those insights. And let's bring Philip Little Thunder Sr. into the conversation now. Again, he's joining us from Parmalee up there in the southeast suburbs of uh, Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota. He's a spiritual advisor with the Buffalo Field Campaign. And uh, Philip. Tell us more about the Buffalo Field campaign and uh, the Buffalo herd that you folks are involved in managing there in Yellowstone National Park. Oh, introduction. I am first to run towards the sun, my Lakota spiritual name. My name is Phil Little Thunder Sr. I'm from Rosebud Indian Reservation. I got involved with the Buffalo Field Campaign through my cousins, uh, uh, Karen Little Thunder, and our late uh, uh, esteemed uh, cousin, uh, Rosalie Little Thunder. Uh, uh, I lived in the Twin Cities, and uh, they contacted me about doing a, a, a spiritual walk out to Montana at one time, and... Uh, and uh, to come out there and help out with, uh, you know, um, Lakota stuff. And uh, so I went out there with uh, Karen, and uh, we did a memorial walk for Rosalie, and uh, we've been involved with Buffalo Field Campaign, and uh, um, Mr. Mike Meese out there, director, uh, uh, and, you know, uh, more or less uh, protecting the buffalo from the uh, ranchers um, because they're they're having a, a issue up there about, you know, brucellosis um, or disease of some sort, contracting, contacting the cattle, and but I've mentioned that uh, you know that they 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 have to learn to coexist because you know I don't want to say this, but the buffalo were here first, you know. So mm-hmm. I I am uh, I do have relatives that are uh, cattle ranchers also, so I I I do not condemn the cattle, and I do eat steak every now and then. um, (laughs) Well, Philip, you called into our show on Tuesday, and and you mentioned Buffalo living alongside cattle and cattle ranchers. And can you tell us a little bit more about that relationship between the Buffalo and the cattle? Yeah, uh, over in West Yellowstone, uh, the park, you know, where the Buffalo will just hang out during the winter, but come spring and and uh, summer, you know, they move to their summer pastures and then they give birth to baby buffalo. But at the same time, they go through the, the cattle pastures and the, the cattlemen up there don't appreciate that. So they they try to, you know, call or get rid of the herd, most of them, so they, they don't, you know, demolish the grass or supposedly bring down some sort of disease over there, you know. So it affects the cattle uh but uh, you know, I'm I'm not much on uh, you know uh, the technical stuff about diseases and uh, you know all this 
mm-hmm. migration stuff that the buffalo go through. So, uh, but I okay, go over I there to help out. Go ahead, finish your thoughts there, Philip. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. Oh, well, you know, um, I, I've been over there when the buffalo, uh, you know, give birth and they travel and those little bitty buffalo, then they're barely hanging in there because of the deep snow. And to have them uh, run over, you know, uh, herded like cattle or, you know, herded like, uh, you know, some ferocious beast, you know, they're little buffalo that get stuck in the, uh, the snow and, you know, the ranchers, they use snowmobiles and, and all kinds of helicopters and, you know, you see them, your heart's going to break and, you know, plus they put them into past uh, little pens and, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, I appreciate some of them, uh, the, the tribes over there, they come into uh, a lady earlier mentioned harvesting the buffalo and, you know, there's a certain way that they don't go about that, you know, spiritually. So mm-hmm. they don't just go out and go out there and blast away, and, and so that's kind of what I what I I've witnessed when I go out there to Montana. Um, I want to thank uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Paul Soderman. He's been out there during the walk. My cousin did a thousand mile walk from Rosebud to Montana to bring awareness to the buffalo being uh, slaughtered. And, uh, okay, Paul. Well, Phil, thank, thank you. you for thank yeah, thank you so much for for all that really really good information uh, regarding these buffalo and, and Yellowstone and other areas. And we actually have one of your colleagues, one of Philip's colleagues on the air now, Eric. He's calling in from Idaho, where he's listening online. Eric, you're on Native America calling. Um, Tomaluk, next bear, next grizzly bear in line, aka my name's Eric Holt. I'm a Nespers Tribe Fish and Wildlife Commission chairman, and I want to thank the previous speaker uh, speaking about uh, Miss uh, uh, Ch- uh, Little Thunder Rose Lee in that walk. And I just wanted to comment that you know my brother James Holt is the executive director of the Buffalo Field Campaign, and we've been involved and engaged with the, the sacredness and the reconnection to the buffalo. And in 2006, the Nespers Tribe took it upon themselves to fight and get back to Yellowstone in that area to harvest buffalo and reconnect to the to them as well. And you know, in 1855, when our treaties were being signed over in Fort Walla Walla, Washington, um, Chief Looking Glass was our buffalo uh, leader in the 1855 time frame. And uh, when they were signing the treaty, he left Buffalo Country after being over there for over two years, and he brought that message back. To the treaty signing and that's how important and sacred that reconnection and maintaining that connectedness to the buffalo and for us as nest purse you know we are a part of the what they call the interagency bison management plan where as as is the itbc um and you know there's some things that are happening management wise that could help support and grow these but at the same time you know this platform and what you're talking about today is not the area to talk about that but i just would like to say that you know um for the nest first it was all about reconnecting and going back over there to where looking glass and our warriors were way back when and maintaining that connection to the buffalo so i just really wanted to say you know today i appreciate those tribes that are wanting to grow the herds at the same time you know those there are tribes that still want to maintain that sacred way of going back over there 
and for me, I go over there every year. Sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not, you know. But each trip, I, you know, I do, I say a prayer each time that I harvest. You know, it's a, it's a different meaning. In a, and I, I pray and I sing and I offer tobacco and I pray over the animal for him sacrificing or her sacrificing. And so, so those are some of the things I, I believe in. And I think as nespers, you know, we want to maintain that. And, and I'm um, proud to say that, you know, we're we're fighting for the buffalo and we want you know the, the yellowstone national park has a cap if you will in terms of how many buffalo they think they can uh, manage and you know they want 5,000 or 3,500 to be that number well the nest first we want 5 million i think that's what all the other tribes want is 5 million <laughs> buffalo back on the landscape so i just wanted to share a few thoughts um, i appreciate your time and uh like i said uh it's a, a long battle but one that we want to maintain and stay connected too. So I appreciate your time this morning and thank you. Oh, right on, Eric. Thank you for that call. And and yeah, I think that would be wonderful if every tribe had 5 million head of, of, of Buffalo. And Eric mentioned being grateful for all the different tribes that are involved in, in Buffalo and bison revitalization efforts. And let's go ahead and learn more about one of these tribes. And let's go to our, our next guest on the show today, Lisa Ironcloud, and she's up in Porcupine, South Dakota. Uh, Lisa, when did Pine Ridge acquire its bison herd? Hey, that's a good question. Um, My mentor is Richard Sherman, and he is my go-to for everything about the Tatanka, the bison. And um, what I've learned from him was um, we acquired ours back in the 1930s from Wind Cave. And I believe um, we got a buffalo from them a few times. But um, so there were Lakota men that were trained to manage and take care of uh, the Tatanka. But when the war had broken out in 19, oh, yeah, the World War II in 1940 then um, those guys were drafted and then uh, they had nobody to take care of the buffalo. So there was nobody there to manage them uh, because of the war. Interesting. And um, I'm curious, Lisa, if you, you know, you compare bison, there's kind of these logical conclusions that it's kind of like, you know, maybe similar in some ways to cattle ranching, but, but is it, I mean, what are some of these specific skills that are required and how is it different from just traditional cattle ranching, bison herding? I I am not so sure about bison herding and cattle ranching. I, I can't tell you um, the difference between those two, but I can tell you uh, like our connection with the uh, Tatanka because when we grow up, we're always told that we have a connection, a relationship with the Te Oyate, the Buffalo Nation. And we know this, but a lot of times we don't have that understanding of where that connection is. So I know with the Tatanka, we have that relationship that we could never get from cows. And when we were put on reservations, uh, back in, I think it was 1890, the commissioner, uh, Thomas J. Morgan, had issued um, some instructions to the Indian agents to prevent uh, the women and children from participating in butchering. And uh, I believe that was Calvin at that time. Well, I'm glad you mentioned 
butchering because, you know, we're talking about bison on our land and being part of the whole food sovereignty movement, but we really haven't talked so much about the processing aspect of, of bison. So how important is it to have that knowledge in your community? Holy smokes. <laughs> when we're talking <laughs> about reconnecting, <laughs> that, in my opinion, is the best way that we can reconnect because there are so many uh, attachments to the tatanka, the food especially. So when we talk about reconnecting and uh, finding that connection, uh, we do it through the butchering process, uh, which we started back in 2016. And at that time, we called it guided buffalo harvest. And we don't, we don't call it hunts because, uh, like us, the tatanka were placed on land and kept in corrals, uh, much like how we were put on reservations and told to stay within those boundaries. Um, that connection with them, because it's, you know, the similarities between their lives and our lives. Uh, but wanting to understand uh, the Tathanka, uh deeply um, is, I believe, the most uh, respect that you can show the Tatanka and that reconnection, you know, understanding that reconnection is what I think a lot of people are searching for. I think so too. Absolutely. Folks, we are going to have to take a short break, but please give us a call 1-800-996-2848 to share your thoughts about bison revitalization efforts. You're listening to the one, the only Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com.
Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about bison today. How important are they to your native community? What's your tribe's historical or contemporary relationship to bison? There is still time to join our conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848, so please give us a call. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We've got a caller on the line, Michael. He's listening at Jemez Pueblo, New Mexico on KUNM. Michael, you're on Native America Calling. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Yeah, the Pueblos have a rich history of buffalo, especially with the buffalo dance, and it goes back to when uh, we uh, we used to, you know, there's, there was buffalo here, but as a as as it as a, as the numbers uh, dwindled or went down, uh, well, there would be excursions onto the plains, uh, and like through through Pecos Pueblo and other places that had the, the trails, and uh, those were also trade route trails. So there was trade also involved with the excursion, the buffalo excursions, and also trading and and struck in, struck in, striking alliances with other tribes for safety and whatnot. And uh, a lot of the pueblos have uh, at least two different versions of the buffalo jazz. One is really a sacred, sacred one, and the other one is usually, uh, it's more, uh, it's sacred, but it's not as, it's not as involved as a ceremony as, as, as a, as a really, uh, sacred ones that, uh, that show the, that have the, the stories of the excursions onto the plains and, and all that. And also, uh, during the Gather of Nations not too long ago, the, the, a lot of the Pueblos had their diversion of the buffalo uh, on display in the in the in Tingley Coliseum in Albuquerque, coming in from all four directions. It was quite a sight, and a lot of people, and you know, a lot of people uh, out of uh, the area, especially out of state, and saw that for the first time. And you know, that was that's a usual in the summertime. I mean, the winter time in the pueblos, and also, you know. Uh, it, 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 it's 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 we still you know we still have have the the leathers and the hides and whatnot and what oh my uh, my um, I have a stepson and his uh, father's uh, out of. Uh, Fort Bertho, so we took him up there when he was young to see his uh, in-laws before you know the older ones pass on. And what struck us really funny was uh, at that time the beefalo, the beefalo uh, experiment was going had gone on, and you could see these. It looks like out of the on the plains you see a buffalo, but that looks totally all the hair cut off, and that's the beefalo. I, you know, it was a, it's the darndest sight to see. So I was wondering if that program was still up. <laughs> the beefalo program michael thank you for those comments that's really interesting um lisa i'd like to ask you that question any any, any comment on the beefalo program are you familiar with that i'm not familiar with the beefalo program <laughs> okay well lisa, i'm thinking there must be some specialized expertise required and um does your organization i mean do you maintain any unique partnerships like with ecologists or biologists even veterinarians heck yeah yes we do um, we work with uh, multiple biologists. Um, Megan from uh, Intertribal is one of them. Um, Richard Sherbin is another, and a lot of uh, a lot of the other teachings come from elders in our communities and people who participate in the buffalo harvest. So it's a lot of uh, sharing information from like personal experiences. Um, whenever we come across parasites while we're butchering, then we'll contact Richard or Megan 
uh, just to kind of get an idea of, let's say, uh, two buffalo harvests ago, we ran into a tapeworm. So we were kind of curious how the the buffalo or the tatanka got a tapeworm. So, you know, things like that, just trying to understand uh, the tatanka more um, by understanding, you know, its biology, uh, the plants it eats, and like I said, through the butchering process, you know, breaking down the tatanka uh, fully with our knives uh, and going, you know, piece by piece, uh, trying to figure out, you know, what was used, how, you know, um, how to cook the hooves or how to uh, take the fat and render it for, you know, cooking later or drying the coal fat or using the intestines. So we kind of created this uh, circle of people, which is, you know, just grows as we meet more people. Um, and that's how we get our information uh, regarding the Tatanka. It's wonderful to hear about all this cross-cultural exchange and the sharing of knowledge and, and wisdom with these efforts. Just really inspiring. And, and Lisa, we actually have a caller um, from Porcupine, South Dakota, where you're at as well. Regina, she's listening on Keeley. Regina, you're on Native America Calling. Yeah, well, actually, I'm calling from Oglala, which is on the west side. Okay. But anyway, I, in, um, I can't remember the year. But when Rosalie, Little Thunder, first uh, decided on walk for the buffalo, she uh, it became clear that you know we needed to be aware of why the buffalo were leaving, why they were being murdered. I mean, they just you know to me it was murder. They were leaving for a reason, but they weren't allowed to. You know, they called in people that could shoot them. So she organized a walk, and we actually rode horses. So had a chance to ride a horse into Gardner, and we protested against what they were they were slaughtering, the buffalo. And after that, I kind of kept track of uh, Yellowstone Park and how many buffalo were actually leaving at any given time. And I contacted this uh, Ben Rod, actually, in uh, Rapid City and asked him, was it possible to at least mark some of the buffalo and see how far they were going? I think to tag them. Is it possible to tag them? And yes, they cooperated at the School of Mines and they tagged them. And uh, he was curious why I wanted to, to know. And I said, well, I'll tell you later. And then at some point, 2018, 1,000 head of buffalo left Yellowstone. And I told him, well, they know something that we should be watching the buffalo because of Yellowstone and the activity going on there. And they know something, and uh, they're leaving. So they should be allowed to leave, to migrate. They were going north. And then he said, what did you want to know? So I said, I just wanted to know where they stopped. They allowed, I think, eight of them to leave, and they stopped. I said, I want to know where they where they are. And I said, what I want to do is pinpoint from that, from where they stopped to a, like a setting a needle and a string and, you know, measuring. And I told Ben, I just want to know if I'm in a safe, safe zone. I mean, you know, we, we don't know anything about uh, the, that, the Yellowstone. But for the buffalo... 
uh, we're called the Pte Oyate, the Buffalo people here here in the, on the reservation, the Lakota, the Ochitishakoin. That's what we're known as. And uh, it is our responsibility to care for the four-legged because we're human, intelligent, and we have a responsibility not only to our own people but to the people who can't or the animals who can't speak for themselves. Regina, thank you for calling in and that vivid description of that herd that you mentioned. And I, I want to ask Philip, Philip, for people who have never seen a bison herd, what do they need to understand about these magnificent animals? Um, first, first of all, they are, uh, as, they, as Mr. Heiner mentioned, they are dangerous. You know, as uh, some people found out last couple of years ago at the Custer State Park, and, uh, you know, I suggest they wear belts next time they go visit the Tatankawaiata. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> as far as the as far as the buffaloes, you know, uh, they they as Regina mentioned, I want to thank her for bringing all that up. The 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 migration, you know, we the two legged, we we followed them wherever they went because they knew safety. They knew and they sensed things that humans don't, you know, like uh, you know the. Maybe earthquake, or you know, there's going to hardly be no grass around here this summer, and then they're moving up north. And that's kind of how we, you know, they're they're fertilizers too. Their 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 waste, you know, grows whatever they left behind. So mm-hmm. then they they more or less, you know, we're our parents. Took okay. care of us. Thank you, Philip. And we have another caller on the line, Virgil. He's also up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. He's listening on Keeley. Virgil, you're on the air. Yes. Hello. Um, I was just driving down the road, and I listened to Keeley, and I heard all my relatives talking about the family out there, our relatives that we lived in harmony with throughout memorial, throughout time. You know, we learned as a people from them how to be a better relative, how to be a better parent. I'm very fortunate to run and operate a, a private ranch here on Pine Ridge with our nation, Black Feather Buffalo Ranch. We are not affiliated with the tribe. We are a private ranch. We have 3,000 acres and 70 head of buffalo, and I'm very, very honored that I came into being a big part of their life. You know, not me, not them being in my life, but me being in their life. I learned so much from the Pteoyaten, how to be a better relative. Um, I don't want to talk about what everybody else talked about, you know, but um, um, I've just learned so much. You know, the Pteoyaten, we, we are nothing without them. We will not exist without them. You know, when the federal government done what they done to us as a people to try to exterminate us by wiping out our relatives, we're still here and so are they. We're trying to coexist and they're trying to live with them. So every day, you know, that's pretty much my job. You know, I, I, I have a ranch. We take care of a ranch. We take care of these um, our relatives the best we can. You know, we're... Um, 
culturally um, ran ranch, you know, without a culture, because you can't have one without the other, you know, as far as being a Lakota Wichasa or a Lakota Wheel. But um, they're very, very important to us as a people, as a people. Hmm. Virgil, thank you for, for calling in. And I appreciate that perspective for, for being just a, a private buffalo rancher. You're not part of a, an actual tribal program or a, uh, some tribal tribal entity. And it, it reminds me because, you know, there are other Native people like yourself who just have buffalo. In fact, uh, my wife's family, uh, Eastern Cherokee, um, they're a horse family. They, they have horses. And a number of years ago, my late father-in-law wanted a buffalo and he he purchased a buffalo and they kept that buffalo there in a corral uh, along with their horses uh, not not in the same corral but separately but but they had a buffalo they named him Yanchi it's a Cherokee word uh, I should know what it means but I don't but anyway I'll tell you what they loved that buffalo like family just like everybody on the show today is describing these wonderful relationships with their relatives so again fascinating discussion Troy uh, resources so folks can learn more about bison revitalization efforts. Uh, where where can we get this stuff? Sure, you know we have a, a pretty extensive website. Uh, you could follow us at at itbcbufflonation.org, uh, and we provide. And then it'll it'll also connect you with our member tribes. Um, so many tribes have uh, programs that. Uh, they do tours, they do youth activities, um, and, and those contacts are located on our website as well. Or you can call the office, and, and we can try to uh, connect you with one of our region representatives. Uh, we're broke, ITBC is broke up into regions, and depending on where you're from, uh, we could put you in touch with, with a tribe or, or a region representative to help answer your questions. And, and if your tribe doesn't have buffalo, um, you know, reach out to us and, and we would be glad to assist in that process. That's, that's part of the work we do is provide that technical service of, of how to restore or how to get buffalo back to your lands. Thanks, Troy. And we are uh, running down um, to the final minutes of the show, but I do want to ask Lucille one more question. Lucille, what does it mean to you to be a Buffalo rancher today in 2022? For me, um, being a Buffalo caretaker is what I would say. It means the world to me. It means the ability to help my relatives, the Iyani, the Piteo Yate, and it also means to be able to help the children that are yet to come so that in our future generations, we'll be able to be stronger as Lipan Apache people, rebuilding that kinship with our relatives. Thank you. Rematriate. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Just a, a wonderful conversation here, learning so much about Buffalo, learning about these different programs. And folks, again, uh, big thanks to our guests today and all of their insights. And if you'd like to learn more about any of these efforts, I would encourage you just to, to, to keep an open mind and explore and find out what's out there. Uh, we have now reached the end of the hour, so thank you, Troy Heinert, Lucille Contreras, Philip Little Thunder Sr., and Lisa Ironcloud for sharing your knowledge and experience with bison reintroduction efforts. Join us next week. 
for another thought-provoking lineup of discussions about Indigenous issues and topics. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producer is Andy Murphy. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Production help this week by Luella Bryn. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director and Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Have an awesome weekend. with a disability and feel you have not been able to access services for you or a loved one? The Native American Disability Law Center can help. The Native American Disability Law Center is a not-for-profit 501c3, and there is no charge for this help. More info at 800-862-7271 or nativedisabilitylaw.org. Who support this show? Support by Roswell Park, who know tribal communities face persistent challenges in health equity, such as cancer and higher death rates. The Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center is dedicated to advancing cancer research that will lead to translatable science, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations worldwide. Are you at high risk for cancer? A no-charge online assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org assessme. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanek Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.